Church, if you have a copy of God's Word, I want to invite you to turn with me to Matthew chapter 5 this morning. Matthew chapter 5 and what we know to be as the Beatitudes, verses 8 through 9 this morning as we take two of the Beatitudes. I wonder, how do you know when you are blessed? When is that word sufficient for the circumstances of your life? Or do you know you're blessed when you finally move into your dream home? Is that when you're blessed? Do you know you're blessed when you make the, the buzzer-winning three-point shot that gives you the state championship? Is that, is that when you're blessed? Do you know you're blessed when your coworkers take you out to eat for your birthday? And do you know you're blessed when your wife remembers to fix your perfect meal on your birthday? Is that when you're blessed? Or are you blessed when... Your husband happens to remember that Thursday, this Thursday, is a significant day <laughs> called Valentine's. Make the reservation. You should do something. Husband, you should do something. So you don't have to pray about that. You don't have to pray about that. God's word is sufficient for that. Well, how do you know when you're blessed? You know, it's interesting because oftentimes we utilize that word blessed and we use it very freely and it's tied to external circumstances, the, the car we drive, the vacation that we get to go on. And a lot of these things are good things. We, we say we're blessed when we take a picture of all of our family that is gathered for Thanksgiving or Christmas meal and they're gathered at the home place and all of the family is there and we just say, boy, I, 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 am, I am blessed. But it is interesting that when Jesus talks about blessing, he doesn't connect it to those external, visible things that we so often connect to material blessing. He says, blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are those who mourn. Blessed are the meek. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. He, he talks about the pathway of blessing follows the road of a relationship with God that is intimate and is connected. And in the Beatitudes, we pick up in verse 8 this very theme that reminds us that the blessed life is found in the pursuit of the purity of heart. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. All throughout the Sermon on the Mount, you find places where Jesus is echoing obvious Old Testament passages. So the key to unlocking the New Testament meaning is to understand the Old Testament passage that is an echo and an allusion to its New Testament usage. It's hard to imagine Jesus didn't have in mind the psalmist when he says in Psalm 24, verses 3 through 4, Who shall ascend the hill of the Lord, and who shall stand in his holy place? He who has clean hands and a pure heart. What does it mean to have clean hands and a pure heart? Well, it is the person who does not lift up his soul to what is false and does not swear deceitfully. What Jesus is drawing upon in Psalm 24 is how Hebrew poetry works. Hebrew poetry works not with rhyming schemes that are pat and hat and cat and bat. That, that, that's not how Hebrew poetry works. Rather, there's repetition and restatement. And in the repetition and the restatement, there's an expansion. So to get to the meaning of Hebrew poetry, you find what is being repeated and what's being expanded upon. And so we say to ourselves, well, how do you know you have clean hands and you have a pure heart? Well, the poet, the psalmist says, well, you don't lift up your soul to what is false. 
You don't swear deceitfully. There is a vertical dimension of this one who is right with the Lord. There's a horizontal dimension of this one who is trustworthy. So the purity of heart is to be right with the Lord and to be right with man. It is to love the Lord your God with all your heart, your mind, your soul, and your strength, and to love your neighbor as yourself. There is to be in a person who pursues the purity of heart a desire to not live this duplicate life, this false life where our private self is different than our public self. Now here's the key to this. Who in this room could say, I love God with all of my heart? I love God in such a way that I love my neighbor and I love my neighbor perfectly. And guess what? All of us in this room fall short. All of us in this room could say there is uncleanness in our heart. Well, how could we ever then see God? Well, here's the good gospel news for all of us that are in this room. There is one who has lived a perfect life where he has pursued purity of heart upon his earthly life and he has achieved that. He is like us, yet without sin. God's eternal Son who lived upon this earth has accomplished what we cannot accomplish. He has fulfilled the requirement of the law. He has lived a life of perfection. And through His shed blood and His resurrection and by faith when we trust in what He has done, so we then are seen by His Father not as sinners but as saints. Through the blood of Jesus Christ that covers all of our sins, none of you, I will not stand before God in judgment and say to him, look at how good I have been. This is why I need to spend an eternity with you. When we come to that moment of our death, when we come to that moment of his second coming, I want you to know the only sure foundation that you can have before a holy God is the sure foundation of the finished perfect life of Jesus Christ and his death, burial, and resurrection. Now as a Christian who by faith is trusted in what he has accomplished, we are called to pursue a purity of heart, not to earn God's favor, not to earn God's mercy, not to earn God's grace, but in gratitude for what he has done, we are called to purify our heart. The half-brother of Jesus in James chapter 4, verse 8, would say it like this, two Christians draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts. You double-minded. Now, now what, is, what is James talking about here? He is making the connection that purity of heart can often be a disconnect between our public life and our private life. That double-minded nature is one who is trying to play different roles. The opposite of a pure of heart person or a person that pursues purity of heart is hypocrisy. What does it mean to be a hypocrite? Well, all of us have this tendency because we are sinful human beings. But in that first century world, a hypocrite was an actual word that described someone who was an actor in the first century Greco-Roman play. So a hypocrite was a person as a male because only males played roles in those plays. And so there were female parts. Well, how would the female be represented but with a hypocrite? One who was a male who would take a mask, which is a female mask, wear that mask, modulate their voice in such a way that they would play a role that wasn't them 
at heart. So when James says, purify your hearts, cleanse your hands from you who are double-minded, he is saying, destroy the mask. Because there's a temptation for you and for me, there's a temptation for all of us to have masks for each and every day of our life to say, I got a Sunday morning mask where I play a role that is appropriate at church that is distinct from the role that I play on Monday morning in the boardroom. I have a role on Sunday that I play with a mask that is fitting for these friends that I'm with. And there, there's another mask that I put on for these friends that I'm with. And what a purity of heart is, is to pursue that there's one, one role that we play. And it is utter sincerity to man and to God. That we are one, that we are not many. That we are one before him and all of us will fall short of this. But I ask you, how many things do you not want to, people to know about that's in your private life that could be made public? Because this is the double-minded life. This is the life of the hypocrite. This last Christmas, Danielle and I received as a gift an Amazon Echo. And we had a little Amazon Dot. And if you're not familiar with that, there's a device that Amazon produces. And it has this voice-activated command where you say, Hello, Alexa, good morning. What's the weather in Birmingham, Alabama? And Alexa says, uh, the weather today is 55 degrees and cloudy and those kinds of things. And so you could say to Alexa, play Christmas music. And so whatever streaming service that you have connected to the Amazon account, it will play the music that you would desire for it to play. What was interesting a few months ago in Portland, Oregon, there was a couple that received a call from Seattle from a friend who said, you better unplug your Alexa device because I just received an email of a private conversation that you had in your kitchen that was sent to me of you two talking. And somehow, as Amazon said, that there was just this perfect storm of coincidences where certain words were said that Alexa heard, send this file to this person on my contact list. And so the question is, how many of those conversations are we scared that might be heard in our contacts in public or at work? What's the distinction of what is said at home that we don't want to be heard? Now, all of us, all of us, if we're going to be honest here, say, yeah, when I get home, I'm comfortable. But one of the beauties of a life that is pure in heart and pursuing this is this desire that our public persona and our private persona are not distinct and not in opposition. Just this last night, I was flipping through the channels and I came across PBS where there was a documentary that came out in 2018 that was entitled, Won't You Be My Neighbor? I didn't see all of it. I didn't have time to watch all of it. But what I saw was a depiction of Fred Rogers, Mr. Rogers, and when PBS was going through uh, during uh, the, the Nixon regime, there was a, a reanalysis of public funds given to public broadcasting. And there was a Senate hearing where there were people that came before this uh, Senate committee 
and there was on the table to cut the funding to public broadcasting. And there it was that Fred Rogers came and, and sat before the skeptical senators wondering what is the justification for this. And in that moment, he gave this passionate plea for what his life mission was. And the reason that he was so appealing, not only then, but even now, was because the person that you saw on television, as you listened to interview and interview from his children and the people that worked with them, the person who you saw on television was the person who you saw at home. There was integrity. There was a person who was comfortable in his own skin. There was a Presbyterian minister, Fred Rogers, who had as his passion in his ministry to show kindness and to show a love for God and a love for neighbor in a way that a four-year-old and a five-year-old and a six-year-old, no matter what side of the tracks they grew up on, could understand you are special because you are you. And that message of friendship, that message of acceptance, it was true and it was authentic because he wasn't playing a role. He wasn't playing a part. And everyone who pretended to do that would be laughed at, except for a person who had an authentic purity of heart. Blessed are the pure at heart, for they shall see God. There's some of you in this room who there's a, a far cry between the private and the public. And one of the ways that you know that is a lack of confidence that you know God's will for your life, a sense of an overwhelming hesitation to take steps. And one of the reasons that you can't see God in your next step, you can't see light for the next decision that you make, there, there seems to be a disconnect at home and at work. And one of the reasons is, is because there's hypocrisy in your soul, duplicity behind the scenes. And the word of God is so clear that when we confess with our mouth, we're not conformed any longer to the patterns of this world, but we're being transformed by the renewing of our mind. Then we'll be able to test and approve God's will for his, our life, his good, pleasing, and perfect will. But if we're being conformed by the world, then we can't have the assurance that we're able to test and approve God's will for our lives. And there's some of you in this room that are making major decisions and you're making them apart from bathing them in prayer. You're making them with unconfessed sin in your life and you're moving away from God and you're not moving in step with God. And I'm here to just tell you that today can be the day that you confess what no one else knows about that's lurking in those dark recesses of your soul. That today can be the day that you tell not everyone in this room, but you tell a holy God that knows everything that we think and everything that we do. God, I confess today my sin. And I claim the truth of 1 John 1, 9, that if we confess our sin, you, God, are faithful and just to forgive us and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Have you experienced the cleansing, righteous work of the Spirit of God in your life? I wear contacts. Some of you wear contacts, and maybe you can relate to this. One of the first things that I want to do, especially if I get home later in the evening, is to 8 o'clock, 9 o'clock, to take my contacts out. My, my eyes just need to, they need to, quote, unquote, breathe. And so the first thing that I do is the boys are going down. I take my contacts out. I put my glasses on. 
Oftentimes the boys are asleep and I read something. I've noticed just over the last weeks and months that as I was reading, things just seemed to be cloudy as I was reading. And I thought to Danielle, I uh, talked to her and I said, you know, Danielle, I've got I've to go see a doctor. Something about the prescription of these lenses. Uh, I, I need to get upgraded here. I've had these glasses for years and years and I just can't see well out of them. And so she said, David... Let me see those glasses. And she looked at them and she said, do you see how smudged and dirty your glasses are? Do you see this scratch in your glasses? And I said, you're supposed to clean these glasses? I mean, that's what you're supposed to do? And that whole time I was looking through something that was smudged with the handprints of my life. Something that was cracked by the ebb and flow of life. And there's some smudges in the soul of saints that are gathered this morning that need to be cleansed by the solvent of the Holy Spirit. There's some smudges that can occur in all of our lives that affect the clarity of our vision for our family, for our life personally, that affect the clarity of what God desires to do in our church corporately. And when we come before him and say, God, only you can take these smudges of sin and wipe them away with the solvent of your sanctifying work. It is then and there that we stand in confidence saying, blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. And one day, you child of God, one day, we as Christians will see him not through a veil, but we will see him face to face as once and forevermore our sins are washed away and we're able to worship him in spirit and in truth. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. But also the path of blessing is a path that takes us down the road of peacemaking, Blessed, in verse 9 of Matthew chapter 5, blessed are the peacemakers, for why? They shall be called sons of God. Notice that Jesus says, not blessed are the peacekeepers. It's easy to be tempted to read this passage and say, your role and my role as Christians is to keep the peace. Keep the peace, maintain the status quo, cower in the midst of conflict, but I'm here to remind you that Jesus is not calling us to just accept and turn the blind eye to the status quo of our culture. He's not calling you to just not rock the boat. There are times as a Christian where you need to rock the boat because it is being blown by a devilish wind in the wrong direction. And you can't sit back and cower from the conflict to you as a peacemaker are called to live out of the fruit of the spirit that's in you. Notice in Galatians chapter 5 when Paul is going to remind us of what that litany of the fruit of the spirit is and he starts with love and then he starts with joy and then he moves to peace. Now peace isn't just the absence of conflict. It is not tranquility and just being chill and calm. It is shalom. It is bringing individuals who are apart 
Together, it is bringing about a unity, not only visibly, but inwardly. It is an active component. And God desires that kind of peace in your home. He desires that kind of peace in your workplace. He desires that kind of peace in your school. He desires that kind of peace in our church. And he utilizes the sons and the daughters of God, you, child of God, as a peacemaker. Now, how do we do that? How do we make peace? Well, notice with me from Scripture that peacemakers pursue what makes for peace. Paul helps us in Romans chapter 14, verse 19, when he says, So then let us pursue what makes for peace and for mutual upbuilding. Notice that he doesn't give us a listing of what makes for peace, but we can know from the whole counsel of God that peace doesn't come with your hands. Peace comes when you're on your knees. There's a temptation sometimes for us to take upon ourselves the responsibility to, quote-unquote, fix people and to fix problems. But there's some situations that are out of your control. There's some times where you must realize that only the Prince of Peace has the authority to bring about shalom in this situation. That is out of your control. It is out of your strength. And so by going to the Lord, admitting that I've tried my best and this is where my best has gotten me. It's gotten me where we don't talk anymore. It's gotten me where we can't be in the same room any longer. It's gotten me where we have different holiday gatherings. It's gotten me where we wake up and we have breakfast, but we move about in our separate directions and we're roommates, but no longer is there intimacy between a husband and a wife. Or it's a child who, who said that to his mom or a dad and there's still something wrong. There's a disfellowship that has occurred. And so for peace to occur, there's no magic wand that you have. So it starts on your knees in prayer. It starts with you taking day in and day out that situation that breaks your heart or that situation that you're involved with to the throne of the Prince of Peace. After prayer, we pursue reconciliation. Notice in Matthew chapter 5, in verses 23 through 24, we have further guidance around what peacemaking looks like. And notice what Jesus says. So if you're offering your gift at the altar and there remember that your brother has something against you, what are we, we to do? Believe your gift there before the altar and go. First be reconciled to your brother and then come and offer your gift. Uh, now notice, I'm preaching through the Sermon on the Mount. This is not the sermon on this passage. We're going to come back to it in just a few weeks here. But I do want us to see what is clear from Scripture, that peacemaking involves your initiative. It involves your initiative. It involves my initiative. Raising three boys, one of the things that can oftentimes occur in our household is that they're not on the same page. Brothers uh, are best friends, but they don't often notice that when they, or admit that, or even know that when they're living under the same roof. So there's often times where there's conflicts that emerge on the basketball court or backyard, and, and that conflict turns into some kind of physical, just roughhousing going back and forth. And, and oftentimes I have to intervene and say, break it up. Or I come and, and, and it's really, really heated and I, and I pull them apart. 
And I at times have to say, now you need to go to your brother and you need to say, I'm sorry. And what is the first reaction that comes often out of a young boy's mouth? He started it. Dad, I didn't do anything. I didn't didn't do anything. He started it. Now listen, at work, at home, even at church, there can be times where we go into our corners and we say, she started it. He started it. I didn't do anything. If they want us to be on the same page, then I'm waiting. They know my number. They can call me. And notice Jesus' words. That when you're offering your gift at the altar and you remember there that your brother has something against you, leave your gift and be reconciled to your brother and come and offer your gift. In a few weeks, we're going to talk about how we do that. But today, we just need to be reminded that reconciliation begins with intentional prayer and intentional pursuit of reconciliation, that we must pursue peace. And at times to pursue peace, we must swallow our pride, we must humble ourselves, and we must not wait upon that person's initiative, but rather we, as a child of the Most High God, we take the first step. Now we'll talk about all how we take those first steps and second steps, but in light of that, remember an important caveat this morning. Peacemakers pursue what makes for peace, but also peacemakers know the limits of even their best intentions. I would say that as a pastor for 15 years, one of the passages that I've come back to maybe more often than others in personal counseling is Paul's words in Romans 12, verse 18. If possible, so far as it depends upon you, live peaceably with all. Notice the wisdom of this counsel. Notice that the the realistic understanding of the difficulty of reconciliation. That at times at home, at times in the workplace, we will not see eye to eye. And at times the Holy Spirit will convict us of that, will draw us to our knees. We will pursue reconciliation and our reconciliation will be rejected or misunderstood or even downplayed. What are you talking about? Oh, we're good. There's nothing to matter. I don't know what you're talking about. And so often we need to be reminded that you are responsible for you. You're not the Holy Spirit. The job description of Savior, God the Father is not taking applicants for. It is wholly fulfilled. And that person is seated at the right-hand throne of the Father. So any attempts to feel that we've got to fix everybody and fix every situation, that needs to be crucified, understanding that some situations are so difficult that you will pray about it. You will seek wise counsel. You will, in a humble way, uh, initiate reconciliation. You'll pursue reconciliation, and it'll be rebuffed. And there are some wounds that take decades to heal. 
There's some wounds that take lifetimes to heal. There's some wounds that take an eternity to heal. And this is the great promise as a Christian. That when we get to heaven, when two Christians who couldn't see eye to eye on earth, we will see eye to eye in heaven without shame, without sorrow, walking step in step because we're in the presence of the Prince of Peace. But until then, be reminded that you're called to be a peacemaker because there has been one who has pursued you even when you were not right with him. You pursue peace because you've been the recipient of another one's initiative. You pursue peace because while you were an enemy to a holy God in your sin, he loved you enough that he would send his only begotten son to make you right with him by faith. There was a time in your life where you were not right with a holy God. And he came to you in the initiative of his love. And he loved you even while you were yet still a sinner. And when you turned to him by faith, you were put right with him, a holy God. And so what we've received vertically, we are called to extend horizontally. You're not a savior. You're not the Holy Spirit. But a part of your witness, a part of your light, shining is the power of the Holy Spirit to draw you to those difficult hurts in your life and to not stay in those separate corners saying, she did it, he did it, they're wrong, I'm completely right, but rather dropping to your knees as one who has received the forgiveness of your heavenly father and who now is called to extend forgiveness and pursue reconciliation with those you work with, those you live with, those that are in your family tree, those you come in contact with here, even at church. Blessed are the peacemakers for they will be called sons of God. Blessed are the pure in heart for they shall see God. Let us pray. We pause, Lord Jesus, understanding that what we have talked about in your word is close to our hearts. There are none of us in this room who could stand before you and say, we worship you and love you and adore you with a hundred percent of our all. All of us have mixed motives. All of us have elements in our life that we need to submit to your forgiveness by our confession. I pray for those that are in here this morning that they have those smudges in their soul that no one knows about. Their wife doesn't know about it. Their husband doesn't know about it. Their mom and their dad don't know about it, but you do. And you love us even with the smudge. You don't desire for us to live in that place. You desire for us to confess it to you. So today we begin that process of confession and repentance. 
We want to see you in our life. We want to follow you faithfully today. And we realize with the impurity of our heart, we will not do that faithfully. We know that all of us in this room have those that we are not right with. I pray that faces will come to our mind's attention this morning. And we would commit in the days ahead to bring those situations and painful relationships to you in consistent prayer to seek wise counsel of our responsibility to initiate reconciliation and to trust your saving work and your peacemaking desire for all of us that we would do our part and leave it with you. Oh, we're not called to fix people. We can't heal the situation, so we leave it with you, the infinitely wise and good God. It's in your name we pray. In the name of Christ Jesus, amen.